Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, September 21st, 2016. Be doing our light episode today, although a little bit longer than normal. faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word. You sound biblical exegesis, good uh, hermeneutics, Christ-centered approach to Scripture, to compare what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, that's how that works. And over and again, we demonstrate that, well... What they're teaching isn't sound biblical Christian orthodox doctrine. It's oftentimes uh, the imaginations of their own minds or sinful hearts. Yeah, that's how that works. So once a week we do a light episode. This week is no different. We're going to be heading back into the book of Genesis as I ramble my way through the book of Genesis. We are up to the part, well, well we're going to talk about... <laughs> we're going to actually put two lessons together here in this episode to make one longer lesson, and note how that, well, trust in Christ, being on good terms with God, yeah, you know, being forgiven, renewed, restored, all that kind of stuff, does not lead to the life of triumph and victory. No, we're going to take a hard look at the suffering that Joseph goes through even after God names him Israel. And then we'll begin to look then at how his life even takes a turn for the even worse uh, when his uh, son Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. He doesn't know that, but uh, he thinks his son is dead. And so we'll begin a a more in-depth study, if you would, of uh, the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. So let's get to it. Here we go. Lord Jesus, again, as we open your word, open our hearts and our minds so that we may mark, read, inwardly digest, meditate on what you have revealed there for both our lives as well as our doctrine. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we're back in the book of Genesis, and when we were in Genesis two weeks ago, 
We covered the story of the rape of Dinah. It's just, it's a, it's a terrible, awful story in Scripture. And I think it's fascinating that atheists would point to Genesis 34 and sit there and say, see, the Bible is a salacious book. It's full of immorality. <laughs> it's like, really? Okay, you, you know what you do when an atheist talks that way, right? You, you, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, do a little bit of a digression to kind of help with, and then we'll move forward. You have to deal with somebody's assumptions, all right? When you're dealing with an atheist, you have to deal with their assumptions. Where does an atheist get an idea of right and wrong? Themselves, right? And yet they appeal to right and wrong as if somehow right and wrong is some kind of, like, everybody knows this. In, uh, in his apologetic work, uh, Mere Christianity, in the opening chapter, C.S. Lewis uh, kind of gives an example of, you know, of the, we all kind of intuitively know right and wrong. And the question is, where does this come from? And so he, he gives the ex- illustration of a guy who is on a, one of those buses in London. And he gets on the bus and he sits down in somebody else's seat. And the person gets really incensed and gets really angry and says, Hey, you took my seat. As if to say, there's a standard, you just broke it, right? And we all appeal to the standard and you sit there and go, where did you get your idea of right and wrong from? So you have to understand this, with an, when an atheist argues you know, and says, well, the God of the Bible is immoral, where do they get the idea of morality in the first place? And you know, there's a, a little bit of a funny story t- talk where there's a challenge between atheists and God, right? You know, and and the the idea is whether you know who can make you know a, a human critter, you know, and you know from the dust of the earth. And so they're they're getting ready to kind of you know the atheists got their dust and stuff like that, and they're ready to have this race with God as to who can actually make a human being from the dust of the earth. And the gun goes off, and the atheists start getting busy, and God says, uh-uh-uh, you go get your own dirt, get your own dust. And so you've got to understand this, is that in the universe that we operate in, morality, the right idea of right and wrong, truth and error, these are all part of the programming of the universe, if you would. And everybody, this is like hardwired into us. In fact, Scripture says we have the law of God written on our heart. So when an atheist starts getting uppity and starts saying, you know, you know, you, you know Christians are immoral or God is immoral, they sit there and go, excuse me, but um, I'm going to take that morality standard back. You don't get to use that. And the reason why is you, you've, you're using something God created here to prove that God doesn't exist. It doesn't work that way, right? So take away their morality or their moral standard take away their idea of truth and error the idea is is that without god there is no morals without god there is no truth and error you think about it the implications of it is what happens when a society goes haywire right when a society goes haywire they're chasing after their own ideas i mean we all look at like what happened in germany you know with nazism and then the start of world war ii and what they did they believed that what they were doing. Wow, I was waiting for the wind to pass. <laughs> the, 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 when you read what the Nazis were saying, they actually believed that what they were doing was good, right? 
but they had abandoned, they had philosophically as a culture abandoned Judeo-Christian morality and imposed their own morality, and they believed that morality was decided among the group in the community, all right? That's the way they talked. And so um, when you read their writings at the time and the philosophical concepts leading up to Nazism, you think of the um, philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche himself argued that the morality revealed in the Bible is a morality, he called it a slave morality. This was given to, well, this was a morality that helped a group of people who were in slavery in Egypt survive. But what if we have a culture, a society that doesn't want to be slaves, they want to go out and be victorious, right? You can't expect, and this is the way Nietzsche would argue, you can't, you, you, you can't come up with a sheep morality if you as a society have decided you want to be wolves, right? For, you know, to sheep, a wolf killing a sheep is a bad thing. But if you are part of the wolves, killing a sheep is like no big deal, right? And so this is how they would argue, you know, to kind of shift the, you know, shift the things in your mind. You sit there and go, well, I guess there's no such thing as a right and wrong, right? So we can just kind of invent our own. And once you invent your own, uh, it, well, terrible things happen is the best way I can put it. So, all right, all of that. that by the way, that was all free. Yeah, I won't charge you for that extra stuff. <laughs> I'm, jo- I'm joking. All right, back to Genesis 35. So in 34, we have the story of the rape of Dinah. Then we have the duplicitous actions on the part of the sons of Jacob, who are the patriarchs, the guys whose names are at the top of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And they end up killing all of the people of Shechem. And it's awful what ends up happening and uh we'll kind of pick up at the tail end of 34 and then get proper into 35 let me pull that up all right verse 30 in chapter 34 jacob said to simeon and levi you've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land the Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Terrible story. Terrible story. So now we've got a problem. Is their sinful behavior, two wrongs don't make a right, right? Their sinful behavior has now escalated things, and there aren't many of the sons of Jacob and their family, maybe 70 or less than 100, including servants and things like that, we're not talking a lot of people. And their position in the land is tenuous. They're in a lot of danger. So God said to Jacob, I love the fact that it leaves off on a bad note in chapter 34. Chapter 35, God said to Jacob, Rise, go to Bethel, and dwell there, make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So God steps in and basically says, I got this. I got this. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. Now, of course, now here's the question. Where'd the foreign gods come from? Huh? Yeah, well, we know what they are. They're idols. Where'd they come from? They're plunder. 
what did, the, what did the sons of Jacob take from Shechem? Did they kill everybody? No. Just the men. Okay. And so, all right. So in the old days, way back here. So Levi goes and kills that guy. He's dead. Right. But he's succeeded by his wife, five kids. Guess who's, who they become the property of? Levi. All right. So here we've got all these women and children being brought in. They're now his responsibility, his wife, his kids. And they've got all their foreign idols. They've got all their false gods with them. And the Lord speaks. They're in a very dangerous situation. The Lord speaks, says, go to Bethel. First thing Jacob says, all right, let's get rid of all this, these idols. Let's get rid of all of them. Purify yourselves, change your garments, then let us rise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So you'll notice here, Jacob is not without aid. And the reality of the situation is, is that when you read the Psalms, this God who is there for Jacob in his distress also promises to be there for us in our distresses. Have you ever found yourself in an extremely awful circumstance, a terrible situation? Maybe something has gone really awful in your business or in your family and somebody's become adversarial against you. And the only thing you can think about is what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And you think through all of your options. No options seem to be a good option, right? You ever notice that when you start to get in those kinds of cycles, the person that you don't ever seem to factor into the equation is God? And so a God, you have to put it in air quotes here, is a God is that thing that we turn to in our time of distress. What do you turn to? Do you turn to God? Do you turn to pills? Do you turn to alcohol? Do you turn to your favorite sin? Do you tune out? And just go on a Netflix binge. And so the idea here, you know, and this is, this is for our instruction here. This is gently again instructing us that when we find ourselves in these trials and tribulations and in dangers and in distresses, that oftentimes God, we keep God out of the equation. But here we see in this text that God is not missing in the equation. He's part of it. Okay, and scripture talks about how God makes our paths straight. We as sinners, our paths are jagged and crooked, right? And somehow for all of us who have faith in Christ, he takes those, that crooked path and he goes, whoosh, and straightens that thing out. And to which we all say, thank God. Because, and then, you know, think about this. You know, you, you, you can all recall different times in your life that you've had difficulties. Now, go back through the thing, your life where you were in a dire circumstance and you weren't sure how you were going to get through it. But now think back. You think, you know, that actually turned out all right. It was as if God showed up and made things work out in a way that I never saw coming. He does those things. So the God who answers me 
in the day of my distress has been with me wherever I have gone. And by the way, God also answers you in the day of your distress. And he is with you wherever you go. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Ever. And so this is written so that we can, with our faith, believe what we do not see. We believe in all things visible and invisible, we confess in the creed, right? Well, for us right now, God is invisible. I still have not seen Jesus face to face. Every time I invite him to Starbucks for a mocha, he never shows up. It's awful. He's just stood me up over and over again, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. But if, I, you know, but if I'm looking for Jesus with my eyeballs, I'm not going to find him. But he promises to hear my prayer. He, answers, he promised to answer in my day of my distress. He doesn't promise that I'm going to not be overcome by my distress. You know, we all have a date with death, right? That'll be a day of distress, right? He sees us through it. He doesn't save us from the curse. He saves us through the curse. So this is written so that we understand with our faith that God never leaves us, never forsakes us. He's with us wherever we go. So call on him in your distress. This is what God wills for you to do. So they gave to Jacob all their foreign gods. Love that. Love that. The idolatry. All right. You say so, Jacob. Here's all the idols. They gave them all to him. The rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. It seems like a waste, doesn't it? Couldn't he have sold that and given it to the poor? Notice he doesn't repurpose the stuff that was used for idolatry. It, it gets thrown into the waste bin of history. It's out of play now. Right? As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So God's answer to this situation was, yeah, well, Jacob rightly said, these people, we've become a stench in their nostrils. What are we going to do? God says, don't worry, I got this. And so as they're traveling, God sends a terror so that they feared them and did not attack them. It's, that's a miraculous outcome. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob, which is what you would have thought they would have done. Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. That's kind of an interesting Hebraism. El in Hebrew means what? God. Okay, Beth is a house. Bethel is the house of God. So it's, it's interesting. God, the house of God, literally translated. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. That means the oak of weeping. Now that name tells us something here. So you'll notice here that Jacob's life is not triumph upon triumph, victory upon victory. All right. And by the way, there's a term for this kind of theology. It's called triumphalism. Triumphalism. And the Pharisees suffered from this immensely. Luther used to call it the theology of glory. 
the theology of glory. And the problem was is the term theology of glory can be a little bit confusing. And here's the reason why, is because when you read your Bible, you read glory, and glory is a good thing. And so what happens is, is that when you try to teach on Luther's concept of the theology of glory, most people come away with this idea that, well, it's contrasted with what's called the theology of the cross. So you've got the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. And when you present it, most people come away thinking, well, we have to figure out how to blend the two. <laughs> These are diametrically opposed to each other. All right? The theology of glory is the theology of self-glory and its triumphalism. This is the idea, and we saw it in our text today with the, with the, um, the Pharisees, that somehow God is used in a way that if you do the right things, say the right things, pay the right amount, or you follow the program, then what God is going to do is he's, going to, he's literally going to make it so that you stand out, you're honored, you go from health to riches to prosperity, you're the bee's knees, it's all about you. God becomes kind of like the genie from Aladdin. And the reason why you have all these blessings is because you're getting it right. Jesus takes that concept of triumphalism and just flips it on its head. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't teaching anything contrary to what the Bible from the beginning has been teaching all along. God is not your genie. The sign of you being blessed by God is not that you have health and riches and prestige and you're going out and conquering the world and everyone says, oh, how amazing you are. That's not the sign of God's blessing. That actually could be the sign that you are cursed of God and God is opposing you. Because God opposes the proud. Instead, we see in Scripture over and again what's called the theology of the cross, which is the theology of suffering. God takes us not from glory to glory. He takes us from being young to being dead. The Christian life goes like this, straight into the grave. And at the end of it all, Christ calls us out of the grave he restores us to bodies that do not die and clothes us in His own holiness and righteousness. And we shine like the stars in the sky. God is the one who exalts. Our problem is, by sinning against God, everything is upside down, backwards, inside out. So much so that people who you think are rational people actually believe that good is evil and the evil is good. I mean, a perfect example of this, all right? You look at the fact that our government right now has filed a lawsuit against North Carolina. For what? Because North Carolina refuses to set up transgendered bathrooms. So now we have the government literally criminalizing people who say, wait a second, transgenderism is not a legitimate thing. This is a mental illness. This is a result of sin. And they're opposing those who stand for the truth. And they're defending those who are standing for evil. And that's our sinful condition. And so 
everybody's around their table, you know, in their conversations with their friends from, from town and things like that. Or maybe you're with a, you know, having coffee with some girlfriends from Alvarado or whatever. And they start to ask you about these things and you kind of sheepishly say, well, I believe what the Bible says. <laughs> you've, you've, you've been in that conversation, right? And out come the claws. And you notice you don't get the invites to the Christmas parties anymore and things like that. Right? Or you get the hushed murmurings going on. It's like that pastor at Kongsvinger, he's so backwards. He teaches like, well, that stuff's a sin. Right? And that Jesus is the only way. And you sit there going, well, what are you teaching in your church? <laughs> right? It's like, have you? I mean, being a pastor is really easy. It's like being in college where all of the, all of the tests are open book. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, this is so silly. It's really easy. Open book test every single week. And when you open the book and you read it, the book, well, there it is. It's the Word of God, and it says things like this, right? So you'll notice here, now coming back to our point, Scripture does not teach triumphalism. It teaches humbling yourself, taking up your cross daily, and following Christ. And people who are carrying crosses, where are they going? To their death. You're on your way to the grave. Alright? You're on your way to the grave. Your plane is on fire. The engines are out and you're losing altitude quick. Okay? And so here we have Jacob, the guy who's wrestled with God. And his daughter's been raped. His sons have murdered all of the men of Shechem. Now we've got all these women and children that we've got to care for. They brought their foreign guides with us. And then Deborah dies. And it just, this guy can't get a break. And then you sit there and go, man, that's kind of like my life. (laughs) Right? Exactly. That's the point. And so we learn to walk by faith in the same way that he did. So God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, blessing him. God said to him, Your name is Yaakov, which means heel grabber or deceiver. No longer shall your name be Yaakov, but Israel, that means he wrestles with God, shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham, to Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him. A pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where he had spoken with him Bethel. So when they journeyed from Bethel, when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. She had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. And Ben-Oni means a son of my affliction or son of my sorrow. But his father called him Ben-Yamin, and Benjamin, which is my grandson's name, son of my right hand. So, 
Look at, look at, this guy cannot get a break and consider just how devastating this is. All right? This is the woman who he fell in love with at first sight, who he worked for for not seven years, but ended up 14 years for her. And the first seven years, because of his love for her, they went by like a day. She couldn't get pregnant. And finally, God blessed her, blessed her with Joseph. And now with the second labor, she gives birth to a son and she dies. Deborah dies. The wife he loved dearly dies. Land of promise, right? Land flowing with milk and honey. This is not, and see, that's the thing. The promised land doesn't point to a strip of territory in the Mediterranean. It points to the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. His father called him Benjamin, so Rachel died. She was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Hmm. Now we've got a mention of where Christ is born, right? Jacob set a, a pillar over her tomb. Is the pillar of Rachel's tomb which is there to this day, Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And then it gets worse. Just when you think it can't get any worse. It does. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Israel heard of it. Wow. Wow. Does this sound like the triumphant, victorious Christian life? Everywhere he turns, everything is falling apart and going wrong. Right. If this doesn't sound like your life, then I want to know what you're doing. This is not the, they lived happily ever after. This is not a fairy story. This is just raw awful. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. So his firstborn sleeps with his concubine. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, sons of Bilhah, Rachel's, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, son of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And then his dad died, on top of all of that. You, go, you live a year like this. This will be a year you never forget, Right? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Has God forsaken Jacob? And see, that's kind of the subtext of all of this. Look at everything that's going wrong in his life. Deborah dies. Rachel dies. People of Canaan hate them. Right? Want them all dead because of what the sons of Jacob did. Then Reuben sleeps with his concubine. And then dad dies. 
This is a terrible year. The land of promise. And you get it. This man who had great faith suffered much. And his faith never shakes because God never leaves him or forsakes him. And we know this, the text says this, and in the same way, in the midst of our trials, our sufferings, our tribulations, suffering produces character, character, hope, produces perseverance, and hope doesn't disappoint, right? So God is sanctifying him, and it just is awful. True Christianity is not about triumph and victory. It's about learning to trust that God never leaves you or forsakes you, even in the midst of all of the difficulties and the struggles of life. And then it gets even worse. All right, that's lesson one. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll get to the next lesson in the series. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break when we come back. More ramblings through the book of Genesis, especially as we get into the story of the book of, uh, the story of Joseph proper. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> from the boss. The good news, gentlemen, is that our soul quotas are up by about 50% this year alone. The bad news is that we have to try harder. We're getting awfully close to Armageddon, and it's everyone's responsibility to do their worst. As we all know, the major culprit responsible for our blistering success is the continued decline of biblical intelligence amongst American evangelicals. They're just begging to be led astray by false doctrines. 
We barely have to try anymore. It's actually kind of depressing. Do you all remember how successful General Abraxas was with his son Stan Stilski? Yes! We would never have gotten away with a teaching like that 20 years ago. Yet, thanks to how mind-numbingly illiterate people have become with their Bibles, it worked like a miracle. Miracles? My fellow miscreants, I apologize. Uh, slip on the forked tongue. <laughs> now, where was I? Ah, uh, yes. So now our orders are to come up with the dumbest, the lamest, and most ludicrous teachings to throw at these dullards and see what sticks. Anyone got any suggestions? We, uh, we could sell indulgences so that people could, uh, get time off of purgatory. That's too 13th century, Agrit. If you had spent even the slightest amount of effort in your demonic studies instead of trying to reinvent the selfie, you might have known that little historical factoid. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Uh, how about praying the dead saints? Done it. Women could be pastors? No, 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 no. Pastrix is already in the dictionary. We can chalk that up as a victory. Maybe. We should tell everyone that they're still under the Mosaic Law. And that they must obey kosher laws. And that they must not celebrate Christmas and be Torah observant. Too Jewish. Come on, you worthless maggots. We've already done all these before. We need to be more creative. And by that, I mean less creative. How about swingers for Jesus? We've already done that one, you idiot. What about portals? Who, who said that? Uh, I did? Well, speak up, worm. What about heavenly portals above Jerusalem? This sounds eerily like the tithing gnome, and he wasn't that popular. No, 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 you wretchedness. These are portals only above Jerusalem, and heavenly blessings fall out of them on the passersby. And, and you'll need a map to find them. And where exactly will they procure this map? It'll come free with every purchase of the Microsoft Zoom. Silence, you imbeciles! They stopped making those years ago. Even the pet rock had better features, and that's bad. Even by our standards. Mm, that just sounds terrible. Why would anybody go for that? Who's next? Uh, they, they, there's a sound membrane. A sound membrane in the sky. Uh, that is bulging. And it, it is starting to leak. You had my curiosity, but now you have my attention. Uh, that's it, Richardness. That, that's all I got. Sorry. Well, that's by far the worst idea I've heard yet. And I'm satisfied. I'll just run these notes down the chain of command. Meeting is adjourned! Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally 
hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. We got ourselves a heretic. (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that Christianity doesn't teach that we go from victory to victory. That you're the head and not the tail, and that somehow everything's going to just go peachingly, swimmingly well for your life because you know Jesus. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank. There's four ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95. After that, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. And uh, we have gifts that we send out as our way of saying thank you for everybody who joins our Crew details are on our website, and uh, it, just know this: everybody at Gunners Made or above gets a copy of our new card game, Reformanda. So, and of course, if you'd like to uh, specify the amount that you would like to contribute, or you know, uh, you know, you can click on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box One Three Three Four Four, Grand Forks, North Dakota. 
zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is part two. And it's a lesson in and of itself as we look further at the uh, book of Genesis and now getting into the story of Joseph proper. Here we go. For the past couple of weeks, as we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, we've noted the fact that um, things haven't gone swimmingly well for Jacob. Like, not at all. He's experienced, well, a huge slide, if you would. Um, He has had his wrestling match with Jesus, and then his daughter got raped. And then his sons retaliated and killed an entire town. And then everybody hated them. And and then Deborah's nurse, Rebecca's nurse died. And then his wife, Rachel, died. You know, it just seems like life didn't get better for him. It got painfully worse, right? Huh? And yeah, his father dies too. Yeah. So there's like death everywhere, right? And so we're sitting there going, wait a second. God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, why isn't his life just getting better and better and better? Isn't that what God's for, right? You know? What's the point of having a God if, if God isn't going to make your life just spectacular so that everyone will say, boy, are you, aren't you blessed? That's how we think, is it not? <laughs> That's how a lot of preaching goes nowadays. And here's the thing. As useful as you might be tempted to believe that kind of preaching and teaching is, that's the type of preaching and teaching that leads to despair. And here's the reason why. If life is supposed to get better and better and better because Jesus is making everything just swimmingly great for you, what happens when life isn't great? What happens when, you know, a couple has a child and it's born with a defect. What happens when you lose your job? You start losing your faith. Because isn't, isn't being a Christian all about having victory upon victory? We, got, we, ha- we, have this, we have this issue. We're all dying. Even the smallest, cutest little baby right after it's born is born with already one foot in the grave. Which is why they got to do those Apgar tests to make sure everything's working right. Count up the fingers and toes and Make sure it's breathing and stuff like that, right? This is a dangerous world. I don't know how any of my kids got through childhood. I really have no clue. That didn't even work. We were on a first-name basis at the emergency room for many years with my kids. You know, it's like, oh, it's Chris Roseborough. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I see Christina is bleeding again. <laughs> You're right, that was a, that's right. Right? Yep. So the idea here is, is that you'll notice Scripture does not teach. And, there, and like I talked about this last week. There's a name for this kind of theology where it's all about life getting better and better. That's called triumphalism. That's the name for it. And the person who is saying, if you apply these principles, if you obey these commandments, if you put this amount of money into the plate. By the way, that last one's always the key that you're dealing with somebody who wants the money. Okay. How do the televangelists talk about these things? They don't ever say send in the, mo- in the money. They always say sow a seed, right? So apparently money, you know, it's like you've got to remember that and this is how they actually argue. They say, well, back in the beginning, God created seed-bearing plants and everything bore according to its kind. 
right? Trees beget trees, cats beget cats, dogs beget gods, and money begets money. So all you have to do is plant your money seed into my ministry, and then God will water it with your faith and cause it to grow, and then you'll get a hundredfold back. That's right. I actually, <laughs> Kenneth Copeland, back around Christmas time, literally, he and uh, Jesse Duplantis were doing a television show, and they made the argument that, um, that God gave them private jets because it's too difficult to pray to God while sitting in coach. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I know. Every time I fly, I'm say, I have no problem saying prayers, you know, or I'm taking off, landing, I'm praying, you know. Yeah, that's awful. And, and you want to know one of the reasons why the media kind of picks up on this and says, talks about Christians in this way is because there is a bad case of this really bizarre disease that uh, the uh, late Walter Martin, he, he named it. And, it's, and it, uh, it has infected much of Christianity. It's the disease known as non rockabotus uh, non rockabotus Yeah, it's a, it's a very... Yeah, that's right. That's right. Walter Martin, that's who his famous are. I don't want to rock the boat. I want to sink it. You know, he said it like that, right? And so here's the issue, okay? Watch what happens, okay? Televangelists is clearly scamming people, all right? Send in your money. Send in your seed offering. God's going to make your life amazing. You're going to be wealthy. You're going to have perfect health. And it's clearly a scam, right? And here's what happens. A Christian says to another Christian, you know, you know, Maud, I don't know if that's right. Judge not, lest you be judged. Oh, okay. You know, he's a man of God. He, th- he's got a few things wrong with him, but clearly he's, he's helping to advance the kingdom. I mean, he's on Christian television, you know. And so what happens is the person who like, like even just like kind of says, maybe there's something wrong with it. Rawr! You know, they get mauled, right? We see this happen on social media or they lose friends or whatever, right? So what happens is, is that within the culture of Christianity right now is this idea that you don't say anything is wrong. You don't question any teacher. You don't sit there and say that can't possibly be what God's word says because then you become a hater. Then you become, some, and, or the other thing they'll say, not only judge not lest you be judged, they'll throw this one in your face. Touch not God's anointed. You think about Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? Christ takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. And this is one of the reasons why, like even in our gospel text today, um, Christ is talking about the fact of the importance of not setting your heart and mind on the things here. All of this is going bye-bye, including your own body. All right? You will be raised again on the last day. So we as Christians, we don't set our hope on things temporal. We set our hope on things eternal. And knowing that Christ is going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead and to make things right, set everything right, we can find a way through the difficulties of this life because each of us is heading to the grave. This taking up your cross and following me thing is not bucking against reality, it's acknowledging reality. The one who doesn't take up his cross is actually fighting reality. They're acting as if they live forever. Or if somehow the goal of life is to 
you know, check off all these experiences off your bucket list, right? Wow, I really lived. I saw the Eiffel Tower. Whew, yeah. I actually ate snails in Paris. Whoa, yeah. Went surfing in Fiji. Check that one off. Not that there's anything wrong with eating snails in Paris or seeing the Eiffel Tower or surfing in Fiji, but the idea is, is that this is what they think life is about. It's like collecting these experiences and then at the end of it, you're supposed to say, man, that was just so cool. And if you think about it, that, you couldn't come up with something more empty if you tried. I don't know about you guys, I don't want to die. I actually don't want to die. I want to keep living forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And the only way to get there is death and resurrection. These are the major motifs then we're going to look at as we start the next portion. We're going to be looking at the story of Joseph. Joseph in the Bible, in the Old Testament, apart from King David, most looks like Jesus. He is a parallel to Christ in so many ways. It's amazing when you think about it. Now, here's where it gets interesting is that you remember the big baby boom that we talked about a few chapters earlier, you know, where, you know, Leah and Rachel are, you know, ha- you know, having a pregnancy race and Zilha and Bilha get involved in it. And now we got 12 kids running around, right? Okay. Here's the question. And none of them can answer this question at this point. Which of the 12 has God chosen to be the one that would be in the direct line of the Messiah? We know the answer to the question. It's Judah. But Jacob doesn't know that. His wives don't know that. So this is where you're going to see Jacob, in a sense, kind of casting his vote for one of his sons. And in the course of this story, the one who truly is the forerunner of the Messiah is going to start to come out of, the, out of the background and into the forefront. All right. So what you're going to see here is that God honors Joseph, even though he is not the direct descendant of the Messiah. God honors Joseph in this sense, that he allows him to typologically have his life mirror and parallel and type and shadow the life of Christ. His incarnation, his death, his resurrection. It's all in there. And even, you know, Philippians 2, at the name of him, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's all in there. All right. And we'll kind of tease this out as we go. But while that story is going on, the one who really is in the line of the Messiah now has parts of his life start to come to the forefront. And you're going to find out that the lion of the tribe of Judah, well, comes from sinful stock, is the best way I could put it. And so we'll kind of work our way here. So, Genesis 37, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with, his, with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Oh, he's that brother, right? This is the brother that is the tattletale, you know. 
Mom, Mom, Dad, Mom. <laughs> You're not going to believe what Reuben did this time. Mom, Dad. Right? Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, what's this idea of the robe of many colors? I'm going to go with this translation, although there is an alternate way to translate it. We're going to go with this translation. Robe of many colors. What does that hearken to? So this is where we get the the Broadway musical, Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat. Joseph is always portrayed as wearing this coat that would make any pimp jealous, is the best way I could put it, right? Okay, all you need is the big white fuzzy hat and wow. Okay. So, what's the deal with the multicolored coat? Can you think of a connection to Christ? Okay, royalty, yeah, okay. But this multicolored. Can you think of a connection to Jesus? Okay, the rainbow. Okay, so the rainbow shows up in Genesis uh, 9. Where else does the rainbow show up? Revelation 4. Revelation chapter 4. I'll start at verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. All right? So the Apostle John hears Jesus say, you notice it's in red letters, Come up here. Right? That's who appeared to him, was Jesus. And so he goes there, and at once I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian, and around his throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed with white garments, with golden crowns on their heads, and from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So here we have the rainbow show up again, and the rainbow shows up as part of Christ's throne. So here we got Joseph in his multicolored tunic, coat that he's wearing, and the only thing that can keep coming to mind visually is we're dealing something that is rainbow-esque, And it hearkens to Christ. Here's the fun part. The homosexual community has hijacked the rainbow. It is not, the rainbow is not, 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 a symbol of same-sex attraction or anything like that. The rainbow literally is one of the parts of Christ's throne and is a symbol of His grace and His mercy. So keep that in mind. So we come back here. So we got our multicolored robe. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I dreamed. Behold, 
we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose, stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered all around it, and they bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now notice here, okay, they actually understood the interpretation of the dream like that. Okay? So the dream and its interpretation are given at the time of the dream. This is like, we'll call this thin symbology. It's pretty clear what this dream means. The story continues. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. All right. What are these dreams? Who is the origin of these dreams? Is it Joseph's heart? Or is the origin God? It's God. Okay? These are prophetic dreams. And we're going to learn later from Joseph himself that when God gives you the same dream two different ways, that means he's established it in his mind that this is exactly what he's going to do. The redundancy basically is God. I've set up my mind. This is what's going to happen. Your brothers and your family are going to bow down to you. And we go, what? What? Right? Now, here's how this text is normally preached. Let me give you how it's normally preached. Well, there's Joseph. Look at that. He had the bravery to dream a dream. And he, bigged a, he dreamed a big dream. Are you, do you have enough faith? Is your God big enough for you to dream a big dream for yourself? You're looking at me like, right? Right? I mean, how big is your dream for your life? Those of you working at Walmart, why aren't you thinking Fortune 500? CEO, huh? You got to dream big here. We want people to bow down to you. <laughs> Alex, you look, you give me that look of incredulity. I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not feeling the love here. You're such a hater. Touch not God's anointed. Shakababa, man. Shakababa. Right? And you, and you guys are sitting there going, okay, now here's the thing. You're, you're all shaking your heads. I could take you to a church where if I preach that message, thousands of people would be shouting amen. Thousands. So you can tell there's something going wrong here because there's, no, there's nothing here telling you you need to dream a dream. Who is this text really about? It's about Jesus. It's not about Joseph. Joseph is pointing us beeline to Christ. Let me ask you another question. Can you think of another Joseph who dreamed a dream in, in the Bible? The, okay, yep, Mary's betrothed. His betrothed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. He, had, he also had a dream, right? This Joseph had a dream. What was the result of 
Joseph's dream from the New Testament. Where did that take Jesus? Took him to Egypt. Okay. Take a look at this. Here it is. Matthew 2, 13. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I have called my son. That's Hosea 11.1. 1. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. So I want you to think about this. We're going to get a little bit ahead in the story here. So New Testament Joseph has a dream. And that dream results in Jesus going to Egypt. Old Testament Joseph, he has a dream. Same dream twice. And that dream will result in all of Israel going to Egypt. And remember the prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son. So now you can see the parallel. This is so thinly veiled that once you start to put the pieces together, you can't unsee it. So here's the idea. Jesus, in the New Testament, is all of Israel squished into one person. And so what we're seeing, and this is funny, this is fascinating. This is exactly what the people in Jesus' times were looking for regarding the Messiah. Wilderness wanderings, miracles, an Egyptian connection, here it all is with Jesus. So as an infant, Joseph has a dream which results in Israel going to Egypt. Okay, now you kind of got the motif. Now let me give you the interpretive key for all of this. And that's found in Philippians 2. And you'll see it now. Philippians 2 is the passage that you go to that succinctly summarizes the incarnation of Christ and what he was up to. And it's in this text that we can see now the parallel, the story arc that we're going to follow Joseph on. Because Joseph is going to die and Joseph is going to rise again. And at his dying and rising again, every knee is going to bow to him. This is where it gets fascinating. So watch the parallel then. Here's our interpretive text. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God... And you can say he was by nature God. That's really going on with what's going on with Morphe. Um, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself becoming, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's where it gets interesting. So here's our story arc that we're looking for. Jesus is up in heaven, and he is brought down to the lowest place. 
He's at the highest pinnacle down to the very bottom. And then he is exalted and raised up to the name that is above every name. There's our story arc. And so we first encounter Joseph. Joseph is wearing a multicolored robe, which hearkens to the throne of Christ. The throne of Christ has that rainbow behind it. So there's Joseph, typologically, at his highest high point, right? And now, what do we expect to see in the story? He's going to be knocked down to as low as you get. And it's going to be a form of death and resurrection, and upon his resurrection, we're literally going to see every knee bowing to him. Right? So he's, this is a storyline that follows the line of Christ, at least story-wise. All right. So what is this dream that you've dreamed? His father rebuked him for that. Shall I, your mother and your brothers indeed, come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, and they found him at Dothan. They saw him from afar... How did they see him from afar? Oh, look, it's the rainbow dude, right? Look at that coat. Here he comes. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams? But when Reuben heard it, Reuben's the firstborn, remember? Reuben heard it. He rescued him out of their hands by saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. Do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Okay. All right. in, ancient, in the ancient world, death or Sheol is described as a pit. Okay. So you can say that Joseph is in the process of dying. He has put in air quotes. This is all typological because if we kill him, you know, he's not the Messiah. We've got, a, we've got an issue regarding resurrection, so we have to kind of typologically kill him, okay? So then they sat down to eat. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit. 
and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood. Does this sound familiar? Okay. He's betrayed for what? Silver. Okay. What's Jesus betrayed for? Silver. And notice now the dipping in the blood. Okay. Book of Revelation talks about how we have taken our robes and dipped them in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. Okay. A little typological, you know, if you would, attaboy to that little motif. Comes and goes quick. But now you can see the connections here. Joseph, in this point, is a stand-in for Jesus, but he is not in the line of the Messiah. So they sent the robe of many colors, brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify if it is your son's robe or not. We've got to identify the, the body, but there's no body. So he identified and said, It's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. So Joseph is dead, in air quotes. He's dead. Right? He's going to experience resurrection a little bit later. How are things going for Jacob, his father? Has his life experienced victory upon victory? Is he the head and not the tail? Is he just going from one conquest to another? Is his life getting greater and greater? Did God care to tell Joseph, don't worry, to Jacob, don't worry, Joseph's still alive. God remains totally silent in all of this. As far as Jacob knows, Joseph is dead. Not on this earth anymore. And all of his mourning is real. And if you've ever been in a mourning cycle, mourning is awful. It's, you, don't want to, you don't want to breathe. You don't want to live anymore. Mourning is terrible, right? But has the Lord left Jacob? Nope. Hasn't left him at all. In fact, all of this suffering that he's experiencing is the result of the very plan that God has put in place to save him and his whole family. Same with the plan to save us. Got to keep all of that sorted out in your minds. Next chapter. Changing of the subject. Now, I told you at the beginning, you're going to see, starting with this story, now, Joseph is going to ultimately start to fade into the background. Judah is going to start to rise. 
And so now we're going to be introduced to the one who is the direct descendant of Jesus. Verse 38, chapter 38, verse 1. It happened at that time Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived... <laughs> Ur. <laughs> it, it, does, it, it sounds like, yeah, I can't think of a name. Ur, Ur. Okay, that's what I'll call you. <laughs> All right. I, my apologies. So she conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Shazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Tamar is in the direct line of descent of Christ. She is one of only two women in Jesus' genealogy that is explicitly named. There are three that are totally mentioned. Bathsheba is mentioned, but not by name. The other is Tamar here, and the other is uh, the, uh, Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. Okay, so we're going to now learn how Tamar's offspring is born. And my apologies, this is rated R, but it's here in the Bible. We just got to work through it. All right, so Judah said to Onan, go. All right, so, so Judah took a wife for Ur. His firstborn name was Tamar, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of Yahweh. There's Yahweh's name, L-O-R-D, and this is the tetragrammaton in the Hebrew, Yahweh. And Yahweh put him to death. That's right, God killed him. So son number one, dead. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Let me explain this goes all the way back, and it's actually written into the Mosaic Covenant. All right, so guy marries girl, right? Guy dies. No children, okay? Who is the one who inherits all the property? Men. So what do you do when you have an inheritance that can't be passed along because it needs to be passed on to a man? Simple solution. You have the guy's brother hook up with his widow, and the first son that is conceived through that becomes the official son of the dead guy. So you, so you got the idea, all right? So this is, and this is actually immortalized in Scripture. Now, once that child is born, that, that son inherits his, the dead father's estate, and his, his responsibilities technically are done, but he can keep the woman for his wife. So Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Not for himself. This, this, the child that would be conceived would not be Onan's son. It would be Ur's. But Onan knew that offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. 
So at this point, Judah's looking at the situation going, I know what the problem is. It's Tamar. <laughs> right? But he's supposed to, he's supposed to give Shelah, yeah, well, Tamar to Shelah, and they're supposed to, you know, produce an heir for Ur. But Judah's got cold feet. Maybe not, because if I do this, what's going to end up happening? Shelah will probably end up dead because, well, we'll just say that Tamar is her own widow maker, right? So, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went to Timnah to his sheep, uh, sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I told you this was rated R. Do I need to elucidate on any of this? We all know what's going down. You know, where is the vice squad ready to bust him for this, right? Okay. So, um... So come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, well, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Sounds like a great price. So she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, well, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Okay. This, this, okay, so his signet ring is the thing that he's able to sign legal documents with, okay? This is before they had signatures. A signet ring became the thing that you would actually ratify decisions and things like that. And the cord and the staff, these are all symbols of his ability to actually conduct business and make deals and stuff like that. So he gave them to her, went into her. She conceived by him how they escaped, how she escaped not being noticed who she is. It's kind of beside me, but she arose, went away, taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. Okay, what kind of awkward conversation is that going to be? Okay, I want you to take this young goat and go find the prostitute I just did it with and get back my stuff. Okay. Sure, <laughs> right? Told you, rated R. And this is the guy who's the direct descendant of Christ. All right, so he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Naim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute's been here. So he returned to Jude and said, I have not found her. <laughs> yeah, that's not something you want to like, well, let me try another door. Hey, have you guys seen the cult? No, okay, let me ask you guys. Have you guys seen the cult? Nah, this is, this is starting to get weird, right? 
So he returned to Judah and says, I've not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been there. So Judah replied, well, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. The story continues. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter has a bun in the oven. Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. (laughs) Does the word hypocrite sound appropriate here? Oh, she's been immoral. How dare she kill her, burn her. So she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law. Here's a little note. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, Wow. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterwards his brother came out with the scarlet thread, on his hand, and his name was called Zera. Good timing on the part of God, right? And you sit there and you go, is that really what happened? Yeah. Uh-huh. The, Judah is the guy whose tribe Jesus comes from. Jesus and Judah... They're like this. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the... What a mess. Right? And what does this tell you about Christ? What does this tell you about God and His mercy? Now watch this. Abraham was the father of of Isaac. This is Matthew 1. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. So notice, now Tamar's name is listed. Just think of how scandalous that is. This is his genealogy. Christ has come to save sinners, including every single one of his descendants. Not a lot of women in that list. Not a lot of women at all. And the ones who are listed, not known for their morality. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? You know, the story sounds a lot like, by the way, sounds a lot like the story of David and Bathsheba. Does it not? Very similar. Very similar. So Christ did not choose to be born of Ur, Onan, or Shelah. Christ chose to be born of Perez, through Tamar. 
Now to Joseph. Joseph is dead, remember? Okay. Chapter 39. Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So notice, the Lord has not forsaken Joseph. Joseph has the Lord with him, even in the midst of this. And remember, Joseph prophetically received a dream from God. Everybody knew what it meant. And is God going to make good his word? Yes. And so God's going to make good his word. But before we get there, Joseph is going to literally be ground into powder. His father's being ground into powder as well. The sanctifying work of the Spirit can be painful in our lives. So Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight, attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, put him in charge of all that he had. From that time, from that time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had. Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sakes. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. She had to say it like that. Lie with me, Joseph. Oh, baby. And you got the music going on in the background, and you know. Little Marvin Gaye, right, yeah. So he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater, he is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except for you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. The woman's relentless. Now, I've got to note this, okay? Just do the comparative work. Joseph, moral. Judah. Let's talk about Joseph. <laughs> right? Okay? So you're going to notice something here. On the morality scale, just the comparison between the two, Joseph looks like he has everything going for him. This is the guy who the Messiah should come from, right? That makes sense if you're thinking that way, right? So Judah has had a major, major sexual fall. Joseph, not so much. And here Joseph is a lot like Christ. When tempted, Christ never gives in. And this is a rarity in the Bible, where a sinful human being, when put a, a temptation is put before him, resists the temptation. We see this in only a few times in Scripture, in the real sense. We see it with Joseph. We are also going to see it again with David. And you're thinking, yeah, but David sinned with Bathsheba. Yes, but David also refused to murder Saul. And when the temptation was put before him, resisted that temptation. Okay, so there's a sense in which this, you know, the ability to resist temptation and not give in to us, into it points us to Christ, because Christ, when tempted, never 
gave in. Story continues. One day when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house was there in the house. That should have told him, run, run. It's a trap. It's a trap. Right? She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. A little garment theology going on here. He left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So he flees the house naked. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and she said to them, and here's, I'm sure how she said it. See how he is brought among us in Hebrew to laugh at us. (laughs) He came in to lie with me I cried out with a loud voice, and as soon as he heard it, he lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. That's how she has to have said it, right? And then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story. The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. As soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Joseph's master took him, put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. So things go from bad to worse, and you'll notice here, falsely accused, punished for something he did not do. Same with Christ, okay? Same with Christ. Punished for something he did not do. And now, in a sense, we see Christ's full descent. He's dead, and what do we confess in the Apostles' Creed? He descended into hell, right? So even here, we kind of have the idea of Christ's descent into hell. But these wonderful words of verse 21, but the Lord... But the Lord was with Joseph, showed him steadfast love, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because Yahweh was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So we'll leave off there. Joseph is dead. His situation's gone from bad to worse. And not only has he gone low, he's gone as low as low gets you. I don't know, but an Egyptian prison in the BC years, probably not the best working conditions. Remember, no working plumbing start to put all this together. People are not showering on a daily basis. They're not brushing their teeth. Oh, and we're dealing with criminals. I just think that the federal prison system, if they sent their people to go investigate this prison, would not give it a five-star rating. So you sit there and you see that the Lord gave favor to him. Wow, you're the freest of the prisoners. What a great place to work. Do you think he got holidays off? He didn't get to go to Thanksgiving with his family, right? So you just kind of have to think of all of this. And so he becomes... (laughs) 
the guy who empties the buckets. You get the idea. We will leave it there, and we will pick up Joseph next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. It's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>